Good afternoon. It's Friday the 13th of November 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Um, and we'll just uh, get straight on with, with testing. Now, uh, the mail was pushing this out this morning. This is a typical headline in the press today. Christmas could be cancelled in Europe. Ireland and France warn their population that there may be travel restrictions during festive period and not to plan on returning home. So the Irish Prime Minister, for example, Leo Varadkar said, uh, it's too soon to book flights home uh, and uh, their chief medical advisor has, uh, or chief medical officer has uh, advised against travel. So nobody really knows what's going on. Of course, what this, do, what this is doing, what these types of headlines are doing, uh, Patrick, is to drive demands for some kind of solution. Uh, the immediate solution is gonna be mass testing, uh, for quickly followed up with, uh, with vaccines. And of course, uh, we know that uh, the Pfizer vaccine is going to be, we're going to begin to roll that out at the beginning of December, uh, but there's going to be 10 million doses for 70 million people, well, got to 70 million people in the country. So clearly there's going to be, uh, some people are going to get it first. They're attempting to drive demand. Uh, you know, we need it first, this sort of thing. So, uh, you know, it's, it's all about managing behaviors, managing people, managing demand for a product. Uh, but uh, we received this this morning. Now, it's uh, unconfirmed. So, so uh, I'm going to ask for anybody that perhaps knows a little more about it uh, to, to let us know what they, uh, what they know. Uh, and it said this, uh, thanks very much for the person that sent, us, that sent this to us, says, I have first-hand knowledge that the Cabinet Office Priority Resourcing Team is urgently approaching every government department to request temporary loan of senior management grade staff to draft and brief strategy and policy on a mass COVID testing programme. Beginning in October, uh, they want the staff to start with immediate effect. Now, this isn't uncommon that, uh, that senior management grade staff would be taken from one government department to another to fill a particular role for a particular purpose. Um, so I'm gonna say it, it, it seems to be correct uh, and no reason to doubt it. Um, but uh, of course, we do have plenty of reason to doubt the mass, any kind of mass testing program. Uh, and actually, Elon Musk has, uh, has uh, weighed into this debate at the moment, uh, this morning, with this tweet, something extremely bogus is going on. We tested for COVID four times today. Two tests came back negative, two tests came back positive. Same machine, same test, same nurse. And this was the rapid antigen test from BD. And of course, uh, rapid antigen tests are pretty much what is intended for, this, for a mass testing program in the UK. Um, rapid antigen tests, it's debatable whether in fact strongly debatable whether they're uh, more reliable than PCR tests. The evidence seems to suggest they're less reliable. And of course, testing is what is driving uh, the current lockdowns and the, the threats that we are not gonna be allowed to travel home for Christmas. Yeah, the, the rapid antigen test is, is meant to be this kind of miracle test that's going to sort of solve all the problems in terms of mass testing, but it's not a diagnostic test. It can't be used as a, uh, a, a clinical or medical diagnostic test. It just can't. The, neither can the PCR. Uh, so what they'll do is they'll, they'll be pushing the antigen test as sort of an upgrade to the PCR. It's faster. They'll say it's more accurate. They'll say it's more reliable. But a lot of these claims are completely inflated. And just expect government ministers and public health officials to be sort of shoving this down the public's throat as a solution. Uh, so all, all mass testing is doing is creating tons and tons of data that is absolutely worthless mm -hmm. 
data. It's junk data. It's just stovepiping the system with just more and more data and really has nothing to do with the actual progress of the virus or what, it doesn't show anything in terms of the level of a real pandemic at all. Zero. Um, well, let's look, uh, because we didn't do this on Wednesday, but let's look at uh, the latest excess mortality statistics from the Office for National Statistics uh, and look at where we are with that. So the red line, if, as you will remember, is that uh, is, is the all-cause mortality. That's everything. Uh, the orange line is the five-year average. Um, and uh, we'll just remind you, of course, that uh, week 13 was, was lockdown. Uh, that created lockdown deaths. Uh, but if you look at the right-hand side there, um, we start to see uh, some small amount of excess mortality creeping in. Patrick, now this is the statistics uh, up to week 44, um, which is the end of October. Uh, and uh, but if we if we look here at, you know, when lockdown was brought in before, uh, the claim from the government was that we had this kind of trend in COVID-19 deaths. Now we, uh, I believe, has pretty much established that those were more lockdown deaths and COVID deaths for sure. Uh, but nonetheless, you see the trend that started to develop a very rapid increase in uh, all-cause mortality uh, as lockdown was introduced. So if we compare that to what's going on here uh, at the end of the, the graph as we come up to date, um, we're not seeing anything like the same rate of growth in terms of deaths, in terms of excess mortality yet. So. Uh, Let's have let's as we have done before drill down and look at uh, where this excess mortality is now. Um, the for week forty four, uh, hospitals are starting to show a little bit of excess mortality according to the ONS statistics. Care homes are still not showing any excess mortality, uh, still below the five year average. Uh, private homes uh, were dying in our homes uh, in a very uh, strongly excess way. Uh, but in other locations, not. So again, a little bit of excess mortality, uh, mortality apparently creeping into the hospitals, but by far the biggest uh, tranche of excess mortality is on our ho in our homes. And our argument uh, here is that uh, this is because people are not getting uh, the medical care that they should be getting because the NHS for this winter is once again, despite the denials by the NHS and by government, uh, is once again oriented to COVID and to nothing else. And in fact, uh, more and more headlines coming out. So this is the BBC from Wednesday afternoon, I think it was. Uh, newspaper headlines, NHS vaccine via and GP services to be cut. So this was the, uh, the announcement that uh, GPs were saying that they were going to restrict access to normal day-to-day -day GP services in order to manage the forthcoming vaccine rollout. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, Patrick, it has to be said, the evidence is clear that in the spring, uh, the reorientation of the NHS and the withdrawal of medical support to care homes and the throwing people out of uh, hospitals on, uh, for, for conditions which were not COVID related, absolutely caused a large proportion, if not all the excess mortality uh, in, that, uh, in that April to June period. And here we are, the same narrative is being sold to us. The same policy is being implemented. What results are we going to see? And also you can't discount, you cannot discount the impact of Project Fear on the public. When you're talking about this, when you're talking about people not getting the care that they need or the NHS restricting services, or even implying that services are more sort of urgent because of COVID, that's, you can't discount the impact on the public 
in terms of not taking up or being able to navigate through the new COVID-only uh, NHS service. And the other thing that's totally disingenuous that's being done by the media, that's being done by politicians, is they're keeping the taxi meter running on this. They're, they're quoting death figures, like 50,000. That's all John McDonald, MP, just did this a couple of days ago. 50,000 deaths, and we need to do this, that, and the other. First of all, uh, the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine has already shaved that by up to 33% mm. just by looking at the death certificates uh, in terms of attributing actual deaths to COVID. So you can cut that 50,000 in a third, and you can cut it off at the last season because coronaviruses don't run like a taxi meter constantly, okay, to infinity. This is what they're doing. They're seasonal. You cut it off. This is a new season, okay? But they're doing this in America. They're doing it in the UK. Governments and political opportunists and, and public health officials are milking this sacred death total for all it's worth, and they'll just keep doing it. They'll have a three-year running total, and they'll be quoting it and having you know, it's like 9-11 anniversaries, you know, having memorials every six months. We've just reached this 1 million global deaths, 1.5 million global deaths, 100,000 COVID deaths. They'll be saying that in 2022 mm. in the UK. It's ridiculous. That on its face is a complete fraud. Okay, and I think people, people in the media need to be more responsible. And they need to call this out. And they need to push back because this is pure propaganda. They're totally misappropriating statistics and they're totally distorting the, the actual picture that the public should be looking at. Um, so uh, the Samaritans has been tweeting out uh, this report that they published a couple of days ago. This is their response to the, uh, to the um, National Confidential Inquiries figures on suspected suicides during the lockdown. Uh, and uh, well, what did they have to say? Uh, they said that uh, suicide is a tragedy that devastates friends, families and communities, while the data published by the National Confidential Inquiry indicates that suicide rates during lockdown in England have not been impacted in the way that many of us were concerned about. We must not be complacent. Suicide is a major public health issue. And this data does not indicate that the trend we have seen over the last two years is unlikely to have reversed. And the trend uh, over the last two years is very much upwards. Um, so this was the uh, report. And of course, this report, Patrick, uh, uh, produced results uh, in terms of tweets from the likes of Nadine Dorries a few days ago. Um, she got uh, quite hard hit on uh, Twitter for, for pushing the narrative that she did. But anyway, uh, it says that we examined suicide figures from established real-time surveillance systems in several parts of England, top, total population 9 million. That's the population of the uh, real-time surveillance. Uh, comparing the months pre-lockdown, January to March 2020, to post-lockdown, April to August 2020, the average number of suicides per month varied, but there was no evidence of a post-lockdown rise. Uh, now, of course, that period, April until August 2020, uh, isn't really going to give you the reality of post-lockdown suicide, because really it wasn't post-lockdown. Okay, theoretically it was, but but... Businesses were still getting still getting quite a lot of support. Uh, people were still on furlough and so on. So the effects of it perhaps haven't uh, followed through yet. So this was the, the key graph that they published showing lockdown uh, in March and uh, the restrictions eased uh, at the end of May, June. Uh, and uh, the population for these findings was 9 million, as I said. And they said that pre-lockdown, the month monthly average was 84 suicides amongst that population post-lockdown, 
uh, and they're saying that in April to August 2020, there was a 7.3% rise. Uh, but this was the, their key findings, their conclusions at the end. They said they found no evidence of the large national rise in suicide uh, post-lockdown that many feared. Uh, they said that uh, there appears to be no rise in suicide post-lockdown, at least in these areas. The higher figures in 2020 should be seen in the context of a rising national rate and maturing real-time surveillance systems. So one of the things they were saying was that uh, the, uh, the, the, the better reporting was, was part of the reason for the rise uh, in numbers. Um, but they say that there were several important caveats. These are early figures and could change over time uh, or with the inclusion of more areas. We cannot rule out higher rates in some local areas or population subgroups, especially in the, uh, as the effect of COVID-19 itself has varied between communities. So those are pretty large uh, caveats there. But the, the thing is, Patrick, that while these statistics um, are being published, there is so much anecdotal uh, reporting from police, from uh, people in the medical profession. Uh, I mean, one person that we know, uh, and thanks for this, uh, had reported to us uh, that a policeman that, uh, that they know was reporting uh, a suicide a week uh, was was what it was before lockdown and that they're dealing with a suicide a day now. Now, it's not clear to me whether that's uh, an attempted suicide or, or actually a suicide, but nonetheless, uh, the figures we've seen with COVID-19 aren't necessarily accurate. Timing has a lot to do with it, as with COVID-19, and uh, I think it's maybe too early uh, to be make, coming to any real conclusions about this, but the headlines have been published and maybe that's uh, all that's needed. Well, that's only a segment, nine million, is that, is that what, what yes. they're looking at? Yes, That doesn't represent what's going on in the country of 65 million right. people. But the worst thing about the, the, the line of argument on this, the, the, these stories, this headline, and even the line that the Samaritans is taking there on their front page, this is so cynical. You know, they're arguing about statistics, Mike, okay? They're, they're, they're pushing a quantitative, a quantitative argument back at the public when you should be looking at a qualitative argument. Look at the incidents themselves. How do they know that even the, the suicides that they're observing in their surveillance are not caused by lockdown, are not caused by the effects of mm -hmm. lockdown? How can you say that locking people up in their homes by destroying the economy, crushing businesses, ruining the education system, uh, ruining young people's futures, their dreams, their hopes. How can you say that this does not affect mental health in an adverse fashion and could be the cause of suicide? You, to make that argument, I think, is just preposterous, what well, they're trying to do. Well, yes, uh, I, I, I take your criticism of that report. In fairness to the Samaritans, they do make that point, they, yeah. they, and, and they suggest that, that more needs to be done in that area, for but, sure. But back to, uh, to Miss Nadine. Yes. She's absolutely trying to deflect this back on the public saying, well, there's nothing to worry about. There's no rise in suicides. This is such a crass and cynical hmm. approach by the government. If, if the, back in the day, Mike, the government would say, we are doing all we can and we're going to allocate more resources to this problem. That's how they would answer the public outcry. Hmm. Now, no, 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 they spin it, they get their spin doctors, they rotate it back and they fire it back at the public and say, down your throat with that. Get, out, get lost, basically. Yeah. We're doing everything perfectly and go away. That, this is the way the government's behaving right now. It's unbelievable to see ministers doing this right now. Uh, yes, and uh, well, the question is, would this be considered a suicide uh, in the statistics? This is an absolutely tragic case. 
uh, of a lady in a care home uh, who has refused to, to take food and medication because she believed that she'd been abandoned by her family uh, because visitors weren't allowed uh, into the care home during lockdown rules. Would this be viewed as a suicide in terms of these statistics? Perhaps not, in which case uh, maybe that needs to be looked at again because uh, that, you know that, that is uh, totally tragic. Yeah, luckily she didn't test positive for COVID either. Not, to, not, not, I'm serious. No, I know you are. I know. Car accidents, uh, yeah. heart attacks, dementia. If you test positive for COVID, you go into that category. It's a separate subject, of course. Yes. So, uh, what's going on with lockdown in the United States then? Well, the lockdown in the United States. So, the, this there's a lot on the ballot, as we talked about uh, in previous programs on election edge. We said COVID and lockdown mm. is actually on the ballot, and we weren't kidding. Uh, it is on the ballot, although it wasn't sort of made known by the Biden uh, administration or the office of the president-elect. He's already assumed power. Biden's chief advisor, who's going to be his COVID czar, basically, is basically saying four to six weeks of national lockdown would control the pandemic and revive the economy. So lo again, locking down, shutting the economy down will save the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the same ridiculous argument we saw back in the spring. So here is Pandemic Joe. Uh, and here is his new COVID czar, who's hoping to assume power in, in Washington. His name's Mike Osterholm, and he's from the University of Minnesota. And this guy has made an absolute name for himself as a kind of celebrity virologist for years. He's been on the Oprah Winfrey show. And so when, when the pandemic uh, made the headlines back in the spring, uh, Osterholm was one of the go-to guys, and he was on the Joe Rogan show, and he has been peddling absolute lies and propaganda from day one. He was wrong about all of the things he said, like most of these, quote, public health experts, and they just keep shuffling them back in the spokespeople. doesn't matter if you look back at everything they said. was you know He was, he was back with, down with Neil Ferguson, down with the big death pro, uh, projections, down with the you know, uh, Project Fear and the, the whole lockdown campaign. And here he is again. So no surprise, he's been selected by Joe Biden. And, and, and if you take a look at who he's affiliated with, he is right there in Bill Gates's inner circle, basically. So from Gates to Osterholm, this is from the uh, Minnesota, the uh, Min Post here, the coronavirus was actually expected. So they, you know, he's right in there with Gates and this whole kind of predictive agenda here with COVID. But I uh, just did a little search here in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, of course, Mike Osterholm from the University of Minnesota. There's a nice little $3.2 million grant there to the University of Minnesota to provide effective, accessible, scalable treatment for COVID-19. This was back in the spring. They didn't waste any time, April 2020. So Bill and Melinda Gates opened up the spigot. Didn't waste any time there. So that's, that's the sort of uh, gravy train, Mike. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mike Osterholm is one of the worst sort of individuals, I think, uh, who's really cashed in on this pandemic, even though he's been wrong about everything from, mm -hmm. from day one. So he's a real gatekeeper uh, on this topic. So this is what you can expect from the Biden administration, national mask mandates, national calling for national lockdowns, circuit breakers, and everything else. All these ridiculous policies, this is what Biden's pushing, uh, Mr. Pandemic. He's mm -hmm. the pandemic president. So, uh, so New York, New York has, uh, has instituted a lockdown. And let's just listen to this. This is from Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, uh, talking about you know, how he's going to sort of make this new lockdown in New York this week work. 
There are only two fundamental truths in this situation. It's individual discipline and it's government enforcement. Yes. Dictatorship? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. He's really getting his, uh, his Benito on uh, there in New York. Let's look at the office of the governor here. This is the decrees coming down from their, uh, their office here. Governor Cuomo announces restaurants, bars, and other uh, organizations and businesses and licenses entities must close uh, by 10 p.m. So 10 p.m. curfew. So again, Covey uh, or Coroni, he's, uh, he's not active uh, from 10 p.m. till 5 a.m., but he is active in the other hours there. So they're shutting that all down. This is what they're saying. The governor also announced that indoor and outdoor gatherings at private residences, homes, will be limited to no more than 10 people. The limit will be implemented due to the recent prevalence of COVID spread resulting from small indoor gatherings, including Halloween parties. Uh, speaking of Halloween, there he is. And these gatherings have become a major cause of cluster activity across the state. Where's the actual scientific proof for that? Uh, I have not seen any. This is just all speculation and massive guesswork. They were kind of saying the same things or hinting here, uh, the government was. Uh, yes, exactly the same things. Yeah. So we'll just go on here. Uh, this is also streamlining with the surrounding states further. This public health measure brings New York State in line with neighboring states, including Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. So it goes into effect today, uh, later on today. So there's the, uh, that's the shape of things right now. Of course, New York being most populous, most powerful state on the eastern seaboard, they're going to basically, uh, you know, they're going to set the agenda uh, for the rest of the East Coast but not necessarily in the Midwest. So you'll see Democratic-run states, lockdowns, heavy measures. Republican-run states, more relaxed, uh, more sort of taking a sensible, I would say, a sensible approach. That's not a partisan statement, because if you look at the records in terms of death counts and all of these metrics that people use uh, to chart success, the, uh, the non-lockdown states, again, totally more successful and lower fatalities and actually probably a happier population uh, than, the, than the Democratic-run, heavy-handed lockdowns. I mean, from the beginning, this Como has been the, the man who's pretty much run the same type of model as the UK and, and Europe. Yeah. Um, and the results in New York City in particular have been absolutely stark. That is, uh, people have left the city, the shops, the restaurants, everything's closed. The city is dead, right? And nobody is, nobody's actually going into their offices in the city. Uh, this is the model that clearly Biden then wants to roll out for the whole of the United States. Yeah, government enforcement and, and discipline. This is what's needed. So uh, so now the uh, one of the Supreme Court justices, he's a conservative justice, Samuel Alito, has weighed in. This is We're going to play a segment from the, the Federalist Society where he spoke yesterday uh, at a constitutional event. And so he's made, this is the first time that a major... Uh, justice, I know this has happened already in the UK, which mm -hmm. we'll hear from Lord Sumption in a minute, but in the US, we haven't had a major uh, person, uh, jurist, come out and make such strong statements on COVID policy. So let's just listen to this. The COVID restrictions have highlighted the movement toward rule by experts. Litigation about those restrictions has pointed up emerging trends in the assessment of individual rights. 
we have never before seen restrictions as severe, extensive, and prolonged as those experienced for most of 2020. The COVID crisis has served as a sort of constitutional stress test, and in doing so, it has highlighted disturbing trends that were already present before the virus struck. So, I mean, does that, that some of that sounds familiar because yes. we, we've already heard you know, some, some of the great legal minds in this country yes. already talking about that. But what, what's, what's really important is <laughs> this has become totally politicized, this issue. It shouldn't be politicized. If you just go by the letter of the law in the U.S., it's the Constitution, uh, then it shouldn't be politicized at all. It's, it's a really straightforward mm -hmm. case that uh, uh, a constitutional argument would be uh, on, on the side of human rights, on the side of the uh, individual, not impinging on their rights. Uh, and not sort of playing winners and losers with, with businesses and things like this. Uh, yes, but what we're seeing in the United States, in the UK, in parts of Europe, is a transformation of government from what it was into something else. Now, mm -hmm. we have given uh, ideas to, to everybody about what we're being transformed into, but it's never been clearly stated what that is. But that transformation, constitutions, are inconvenient for that type of transformation. They've got to be undermined. They've got to be infringed. Very much so. Yes. And so let, let's hear, now this is interesting, uh, Justice Alito's comments streamline very well, dovetail very well with uh, Lord Justice Sumption. Uh, and this is from uh, just a few weeks ago here in a podcast uh, with, I believe, Alison Pearson from The Telegraph, mm -hmm. who's been very active on this issue. Here's Lord Sumption. Uh, we'll play this clip. Well, the most important thing about the Coronavirus Act is that it's not the act which has been used to justify the lockdown or other measures affecting citizens. There are no powers in the Coronavirus Bill to control the movements of healthy people. The government has in fact used the Coronavirus Act only to justify the financial implications of the lockdown. Most of the Act is in fact concerned with authorising, with the minimum of parliamentary scrutiny, additional public expenditure. I do not myself believe that that Act confers on the government the powers which it has purported to exercise, because it is a basic principle of British constitutional law that you cannot invade fundamental rights, and there are a few more fundamental rights than liberty, by using general terms. You've got to be specific about it. And the reason for that is that if you use general words to justify draconian invasions of fundamental rights, there's too big a risk that it will pass unnoticed in the course of the parliamentary process. Mm. To invade fundamental rights, you have to have absolutely specific language. The only specific language in the Public Health Act which uh, justifies invasions of liberty relates to people who are believed on reasonable grounds to be infectious. Ministers can only do things that magistrates could do, and magistrates only have power to control the movements of infected people or to control the opening of infected premises. They don't have power to control uncontaminated premises or healthy people. So that's absolutely clear, Patrick, because what he's saying there is that government is taking a 
upon itself powers which it doesn't actually have. Now, this is very interesting timing because uh, uh, Alex Thompson, David Scott and I have just completed the, the latest uh, episode of uh, the Dissident's Guide to the Constitution and that will be published over the weekend. Um, and this is exactly one of the areas that we are discussing in that, uh, in that podcast. Um, and uh, I think if I remember rightly, Sumption went on then to talk about the Civil Contingencies Act. Mm. Um, and uh, the question is, why is the government not using the Civil Contingencies Act? Why did it need to uh, bring some new legislation in? And they're not declaring a national emergency, uh, which is what they would have to do to implement the, uh, or to impose the Civil Contingencies Act. And, and, and the reason is uh, that uh, as, as bad as the Civil Contingencies Act is in terms of the, the level of, of uh, draconian uh, powers that the government can take upon itself, uh, as a result of that act, it puts limitations on, on government behaviour. Mm -hmm. They don't want to bring the Civil Contingen Contingencies Act online because of those limitations, so they've brought new legislation in, which completely subverts the limitations that, that are there constitutionally and subverts the limitations which Parliament thought were good to have in the Civil Contingencies Act as well. So it's just a, it's, it's just an end run around parliamentary democracy yes. and constitutional law. 100%. That's all it is. Yes. So it's a trick at the end of the day. The, so he made a really uh, fundamental common law uh, argument there. He's saying that you know governments can't have any more power than magistrates, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so by, by leaving it vague under the you know Public Health or Coronavirus Act rather than uh, in terms of civil contingencies, by, by being vague about it, uh, they don't have to specify anything. So you throw in the asymptomatics mm -hmm. and uh, you know quarantining healthy people and testing healthy people, and uh, you you couldn't get a you know that wouldn't stand up in a court of law. So so it's really it's an end run around the justice system. Uh, you could look at it that way, couldn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yes. Okay. Well, look. Uh, we'll we'll move on, uh, and uh, we'll just uh, say that if you like what the UK Column does, and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community, and there are options to help us out there that would be very much appreciated. Um, what's the latest on the uh, U.S. election, then, Patrick? Well, back to the back to the U.S. election, and there it is. And uh, we thought it was all over. Well, the question is, is it all over? That's the big question. So uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, election fraud. There's, there's challenges coming from the, uh, the incumbent Donald Trump, the White House. So uh, and this is what the mainstream media is, is pushing out right now. Here we go. The Department of Homeland Security breaks from Trump and his baseless claims of election fraud, calling this year's presidential race the most secure in American history. And so you back this up with the New York Times also saying that election uh, election officials across the country has said that they find no evidence of any fraud or whatever. So, so you can see the argument that's being made that there's been this push by the by the uh, civil service, by the mainstream media, uh, by all these you know usual suspects that there's nothing, there's no problems, nothing to see. Meanwhile, the evidence is absolutely mounting up. There's cases being filed in multiple states. They've got hundreds of uh, pages of affidavits. They've got testimony, they've got physical evidence as well. Let's just take a look at just a couple of the things that are moving right now in the courts. So uh, contrary to what the mainstream media is claiming, uh, 2020 election fraud, yes, there are real cases here. Now this is big, a Pennsylvania court, Secretary of State lacks authority to change the deadline two days before election day. So this is really uh, foreshadowing a potential decision by the Supreme Court here to basically push back 
that sort of uh, deadline extension that came and was rushed through. Uh, uh, what was massively interesting about this story was that the mainstream press was downplaying it as much as they possibly could. It only affects 2,000 votes is what they were saying. And they weren't, they weren't engaging on the point that you've just made, with the implications for Supreme Court. Sure, yeah. And so it, it, it affects more than 2,000 votes, by the way. Okay, and, and so that potentially, you could see something like this could flip Pennsylvania, okay? Now let's look at what else is going on. What other states could be potentially flipped? Let's take a look here. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, the president's attorney, has revealed uh, evidence of election fraud in cases in uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania, and also Nevada as well. So he's, he's being forced to go to alternative media outlets because the press will not cover any of these stories. So these, these legal cases and challenges, they don't want to know. He's been, they've been completely frozen out of the press. The only outlet I think that is giving any airtime is Fox News, but then only a little bit because they've kind of turned against the president. So people like Giuliani are going to uh, Newsmax or more alternative outlets like Just the News, John Solomon's new news outlet. So, but the, the, the evidence is, is, is quite striking. And uh, if, it, if there's a motion to discovery, then all of this is going to be basically considered by judges mm. and we could see legal action moving forward uh, by next week. And so the, in terms of timing, there, there's plenty of time uh, to affect the process because the Electoral College doesn't meet until the second week of December. And, and then the states you know, have to certify each of these elections. There is no winner yet. This is the thing. And this is why we're seeing this rush by the uh, Obama, uh, <laughs> Freudian slip there, the Biden, <laughs> the Biden president-elect office, this new thing he's created, uh, to, to, to make him the winner, to basically say he's the winner. And, uh, and the media. And, yeah, to create a consensus. Mm -hmm. So in terms of election fraud, look at this one. This is stunning here. This is Iowa. Republican House candidate pulls ahead in Iowa after an audit of ballots uncovers an error. So when you go to audit the ballots by hand and not feeding them through the machines at 4 a.m., you have something like this. This is huge. If this seat turns for the Republicans, they're looking at potentially 12, maybe 13 seats in the House uh, gain on the on the Democrats. This means that uh, the, the Democratic majority is, is becoming thinner and thinner by the day. So this is the, the opposite of what we were told in the run-up to the election and even during the election uh, in terms of what the uh, Republican performance is going to be. If they do ballot audits in all of these states that the White House is challenging, you could potentially see a couple of states flip back to Donald Trump, then all of a sudden the narrative is completely reversed. Uh, and did I see uh, that Georgia has started hand counting? Uh, th th there is an order for a, a, a mandatory hand recount, uh, I believe, in Georgia. Uh, they've also got two Senate runoffs uh, elections that are going to happen as well. And so that, you know, th that's really important in terms of if the Republicans are going to maintain control of the Senate. But there's going to be a lot more scrutiny on that Senate runoff mm. than there was on, on election night on November 3rd. So that probably bodes well for the Republicans. But again, Georgia could flip back to Donald Trump if they go in and any of these cases that have been filed in Georgia for election fraud as well, mm -hmm. if, if that throws out a certain number of ballots and military ballots are coming in to be counted on November 21st, Georgia could flip. If Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Michigan flip or Arizona flips, three of those you know, six states that are up in the air right now, 
then Donald Trump is going to be sworn in on January 20th. So, I mean, it's, it's funny that they've really pushed this Biden wand so, so much energy. Foreign leaders are endorsing him and he's getting his cabinet together. And by the way, this is the same thing that the uh, Bush administration did in 2000. They were very savvy. They appointed their cabinet, made it a diverse cabinet with Condoleezza Rice and uh, Colin Powell. Mm. And that really, the, that placated the media so much. And then when the bad news came for Al Gore, it really deflated the fight in the Democrats. By the way, Al Gore was given 37 days to challenge one single state, the state of Florida in 2000. And it, he was allowed to do that. That was seen as due process. But now, because Donald Trump is challenging some of these states, it's, they're calling it a coup, that he's trying to seize power. This is a fascist takeover by the White House. I mean, the, the level of lying and dishonesty uh, and, and partisan hackery in the media is just too much. It really is too much. And it's, it's, I think it's destroying uh, political discourse. Uh, if it wasn't already destroyed, they, the media, and partisans who have no respect at all for due process or the rule of law, they're really destroying political discourse in the United States, not Donald Trump. Yeah. Donald Trump's doing exactly what Al Gore did in 2000. So, so how's this gonna affect Britain, Mike? That's the question. How's this gonna affect Britain? If, if there's a Biden presidency, well, what, what does that mean for the UK? Uh, it means big trouble. Big trouble. What could be what what could be coming down the pipeline? We'll take a look at this. Joe Biden tipped to appoint guess who? Barack Obama as ambassador to the UK. And a very awkward move for Boris, says the Express newspapers. This, now, the Queen will love it because she loves uh, Barack Obama, but uh, I have never ever heard of a former US president becoming an ambassador to any other country. Surely, well, I mean, once you're president, that is as high as you can go. And it is pretty unusual to see somebody taking a step down like this. No, it's completely unprecedented. I'm sure it might have happened once or something in history, but I can see when they get older, could be kind of a swan song appointment, you know, post 70, something like that. Nice and relaxed. Go shopping at Harvey Nichols on the weekend with the wife, break a few champagne bottles over some ships or whatever. But this is totally unprecedented. At his age and at his sort of position of power in U.S. politics, this is a totally politicized mm. appointment by the United States. And you have to ask yourself the question, why would they send Barack Obama to the U.K.? That's the question. And this is what you can expect. Let's take a look at this. So if, if Obama becomes ambassador to the U.K., special relationship is going to change slightly here. Ambassador Obama, this is what you're going to get. Firstly, there, his, his task, his mission will be to push the UK back towards Brussels. Make no mistake about it. Uh, he opposed Brexit publicly, one of the only uh, leaders to do that, I think. Well, certainly that was, you know, unusual for the special relationship. So pushing UK back into the EU, that will be a major goal and to sabotage the EU withdrawal agreement, whatever's left of it, he will be involved in that. He's actually already making comments uh, along those lines with regards to the Irish situation, uh, the Good Friday Agreement and mm -hmm. so forth. So if things aren't already difficult for, for the government or for Boris Johnson, Obama will make sure they're even more difficult. 
when he's over here decamped in London to stir up social justice and BLM protests in the UK. If you look at Obama's career, his history as a community organizer, he is a uh, master political agitator. But now he's got this incredible platform and a global platform. He's regarded as kind of a, a hero for uh, you know persons of color globally. He will use that platform like he has done in the United States, like his wife has done, to basically gin up the mobs, mm -hmm. basically. We saw what happened over the past couple of months and also throughout his presidency. So the, why would you do that, Mike? Why would you, you know, what's the advantage to doing that if, if you could throw a word in here or a prompt in here in the UK? That puts pressure on the government. Mm -hmm. So again, this is the this is the political business model of Obama and other people like him on this end of the left wing of the spectrum. And here's the big part here, Mike. He's going to be pushing the climate change and Green New Deal agenda. Make no mistake about it. And what comes with that acceleration of UK adoption of the Great Reset agenda. He is Davos's ambassador in London, and he will make sure by commanding the climate change protesters. Greta Thunberg, Extinction Rebellion, that the Davos agenda will be fast-tracked in the UK. So if Boris is waffling or the, 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 the Brexiteer in, in, in the British heartlands are clamoring or restless, Obama will be there to keep Boris Johnson's government on course. And if there happens to be another government uh, while he's here as his tenure, uh, he'll be right in there if it's, you know, God forbid or whatever, a labor government makes it into power. Uh, Obama will be there to shepherd them along the Davos World Economic Forum agenda. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, let's uh, let's move on to this then, because uh, mainstream press, lots of them, asking this question: What happens if Trump refuses to concede U.S. election now Biden has won? So Biden has won again. We've got the press here stating that as as a fact. They're all saying it. Yes. And this article says in The Independent says Donald Trump falsely declared victory on the night of the election and vowed to go to the Supreme Court to stop vote counting, confirming some Americans' worst fears that he would undermine the democratic process. This is the position that they're taking. Uh, now Joe Biden has won the US election. What happens if the president refuses to leave the, the, the White House? And this is a very interesting question, Patrick, uh, because uh, we have Newsweek here uh, from um, the 11th of June, saying if Donald Trump refuses to leave the White House, Secret Service will escort him out. And because this is a narrative, that this isn't a new narrative, this is one that has been developing over a period of months uh, from well before the election. The suggestion that Donald Trump would be in a position where he would refuse to leave the White House. Um, here is uh, Reuters. Pelosi says Trump will be fumigated out if he refuses to leave the White House after a loss. Uh, and uh, that was uh, from October, I think. Now, Pelosi had been in conversations with the military about military intervention if Trump had uh, decided to refuse to leave the White House for any reason. Um, and uh, But that she wasn't happy to leave it with the military uh, because this was in The Guardian a few days ago. A few weeks ago, uh, Congress will discuss rules for Trump's removal under the 25th Amendment. So they were looking for any possible way to get him out. But my point here is that the narrative was being established from months ago that a scenario would be in existence after the election 
where Trump would be refusing to leave. And I'm just fascinated that they knew that that would be a, a scenario that they would have to that would be playing out at this point. Oh, they knew the result would be the you know what what the pollsters were saying: Biden up by 14, Biden up by 17 all summer. So that was part that that was absolutely part of the gag was you have all the mainstream pollsters and the mainstream media inflating this great Biden lead. And this is to sort of condition the public to think that he was the odds-on overwhelming favorite and that uh, anything, any other a close result is just a fluke. And uh, the, you know, he's, the, he's the rightful president. He's already been declared president by the media. Newsflash for the British press. Uh, the media doesn't declare the president in the United States. You don't elect the president. The mainstream corporate media doesn't. Uh, the people elect the president, their representatives in Congress elect the president, and they haven't certified the election yet, and they haven't sent electors yet to, uh, to the Electoral College to, to vote yet. So uh, you can't call the election. It means nothing. And it didn't mean anything for uh, Bush and Gore in 2000 either. But for some reason, we're supposed to not see history and precedent, and this is a new thing. Look, the last thing I'm going to say is they're not going, they're going to accelerate with this, Mike. It's not just when is Donald Trump going to leave the White House on January 19th. They want to remove him before inauguration and hence invoke the 25th Amendment, say he's mentally not fit, mm. etc. So they want to get him out. They want to press him the total humiliation and repudiate his whole presidency, almost expunge or erase it. This is like the, this is like the procession of, of kings or... Mm. You know, Soviet regimes. I mean, it's unbelievable uh, how how bloodthirsty uh, the Democrats are on this. But we shall see. We shall see. Uh, well, another another king who has been deposed now seems to be Dominic Cummings. Now, oh, the hand, the hand of the king. The hand of the king. Yeah, lots and lots of questions about this, of course, uh, because there seems to be all kinds of civil war going on within the uh, Boris Johnson regime, as we can call it. Uh, but this is uh, uh, Robert Peston uh, in, on ITV's uh, website saying why Boris Johnson had to let Dominic Cummings go. Uh, and uh, he's saying, I, last uh, July, I wrote to the government, I wrote that the government of Boris Johnson was being taken over by Dominic Cummings and his vote leave teams, uh, team that was not hyperbole. Since then, both the reality of Cummings and the myths about him have defined Johnson's first 16 months as PM, which is why, as one Downing Street insider put it to me, Cunning, uh, Cummings' uh, departure feels like a fire has raged through the building. For all the controversy stirred up by Cummings, or perhaps because of it to an extent, uh, Johnson owes a substantial debt to the eccentric special advisor who organised the referendum campaign for leaving the EU. So, well, Cummings had said uh, in his blog post in January, the famous blog post where he was talking about weirdos and so on going into government, uh, he had said that uh, uh, he was planning on trying to make his role largely redundant by the end of the year. Now, the timing of that perhaps was related to the, uh, the transition agreement, the transition period with the EU uh, being complete uh, and uh, a future relationship with the EU being complete. So I think it's perhaps in that context we've got to look at this uh, because Barnier is still in this country. He's still in the UK at the moment uh, running negotiations with the EU for the future relationship. Um, because if you remember, the, uh, the Brexit was, was a divorce. And then uh, how much of it do we go back into afterwards? Mm. And that's the question. Now, if Cummings is out of the way, then uh, perhaps we will be back into uh, 
more than otherwise. It's mm. it's it's very hard to, to call this one. But look, uh, let's just remind ourselves what the what the EU deal, the future partnership was all about. Um, first of all, it was all about a, a level playing field with respect to trade. Um, and uh, in order to maintain that level playing field, if you remember, uh, the full body of EU law and regulations uh, has been put on the UK statute books. But this is all we ever hear about in the uh, UK media is the level playing field and the trade agreement, the free trade agreement, what the implications are for, for freedom of movement between the UK and the EU, uh, what kind of uh, tariffs are going to be in place, uh, the possibility of uh, huge queues of trucks in Kent on the 1st of January uh, because, uh, the, because the customs arrangements haven't been put in place. That is 100% of the focus of the UK media. But there's a whole other aspect to this, as we've highlighted on this program before, and that's the security partnership. And as far as the EU is concerned, that's 50% of this deal. Uh, and the UK is very interested in this security partnership as well. Um, and so foreign security and defence policy uh, is all uh, a key part of it. Now, if you look down through that list, strategic dialogue, sanctions, participation in EU-led operations and missions, defence capabilities, intelligence exchanges, space and development. Well, these are all the types of areas that are part and parcel of EU defence. Um, so uh, I just want to, just a little aside here, I just want to mention this. This is uh, Rusty Furman's uh, YouTube channel. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, he interviewed Nigel Farage. Um, and uh, do, do go and well, watch that interview if you, if you haven't seen it already. Uh, look for Rusty Furman SAS TV. Uh, on YouTube. Now, of course, Rusty Furman, if you don't know, was uh, one of the SAS personnel that entered the Iranian embassy during the siege uh, back in the 80s. Now, uh, this is what Nigel Farage had to say during that interview. I'm pretty sure that if Trump wins re-election, EU Defence Union will become a bigger issue. Uh, and this was quite a fascinating statement because this was made the day before he went off to the United States uh, to go and take part in the pre-election uh, arrangements the prayer that the, the, uh, the he spoke at one of the one of the Trump rallies for example so this was the day before he flew off uh, to spend some time with Donald Trump so it was quite surprising perhaps or maybe not that because the implication of what Farage said was that Trump was going to do something about EU defense union well what was he going to do was he against it was he for it I think maybe we get a clue now because here's, here's uh, Mike Pompeo the Secretary of State from a day or two ago uh, the U.S. welcomes. He was speaking to Fox, if I'm right. Uh, well, this was a general. Yeah, I was speaking to a reporter, but it was a it was a press conference. Okay, okay. So the U.S. welcomes the EU's guidelines for third state particip participation in permanent structured cooperation projects. Uh, he said, opening the door to U.S. participation in EU defense initiatives will strengthen NATO EU cooperation as well, and very importantly, interoperability. And he said, we look forward to completing an administrative arrangement with the European Defence Agency to ensure broad US participation inside PESCO. So quite contrary to the suggestion by Nigel Farage that uh, the US administration would be uh, against uh, EU Defence Union. In fact, it looks like they want to get right in there. So let's just uh, quickly uh, remind everybody uh, what PESCO is in case you don't know. Uh, this, of course, one of the pillars of the EU Defence Union. Uh, and it's had quite uh, a history, uh, quite a development process. Let's just quickly run through this. So starting in 2015, the European Political Strategy Centre published a white paper on military unification, uh, and they were talking about the Lisbon Treaty. 
uh, and this is something which was provided it, in the Lisbon Treaty, this idea of permanent structured cooperation, uh, that it could become a game changer for European security by enabling willing member states to move forward. Uh, then the main action happened in 2017 when the European Council called for a launch of permanent structured cooperation in June of that year. And then in September, the UK government published a foreign policy, defence and development Brexit white paper in which they said that uh, the UK will continue its contribution to the common security and defence uh, policy missions and operations if it could participate in both the mandate development and detailed operational planning stages of PESCO. So at that point, they were very interested in uh, PESCO in September. Uh, in uh, November then, the EU military uh, was established with the signing of the joint notification on PESCO. And if you remember, if you were watching the UK column at that time, you'd have seen Federica Mogherini extremely excited about this. 23 nations joined. The UK didn't sign, but it was possible at that time for the UK and other member states to join at a later stage. Uh, and then in December, uh, the House of Commons Library published uh, a PESCO briefing paper in which he said that the UK government did not sign the joint notification on the 13th of November. Uh, as such, it will remain outside of PESCO. In doing so, the UK will have no decision making rights over PESCO governance or any veto over the future strategic direction of PESCO, which has op been openly acknowledged as greater EU integration in the field of defence. And then uh, on the 11th of December, the European Council established the permanent structured cooperation. Now, at present, the UK is not part of this, but it is part of the negotiations on the future uh, uh, agreement with the future partnership with the EU. And it's clear that the US also wants to get involved. So there are massive implications for NATO in this. Uh, but just to let people understand the scope of it, uh, this is, I realise nobody's going to be able to see that because it's way too small. There's 47 PESCO projects. Uh, we'll put the link to the uh, PESCO projects list uh, under uh, in the video description on the UK Column website and also on YouTube uh, shortly after the programme. And you'll get to see this list of 47 projects. But you'll see that they're in the same types of policy areas uh, as were listed in the defence and security section on the uh, the, the template for the future agreement with the between the UK and the EU. And just to put this into a slightly different context, this is the EU's diagram for what makes up European Defence Union, eight pillars, uh, NATO at one end, bilateral, multilateral cooperation at the other end, PESCO, absolutely a key pillar of this. If you want to get more on the background to this, do have a look at the uh, UK column section on European Defence, EU Defence Union, European Defence Union, uh, you can get to that by just going to ukcolumn.org slash defence. Uh, and also, if you uh, have been watching uh, David Ellis's series uh, of uh, reports, his David Ellis report programmes, uh, he has been covering quite a bit of this in recent weeks. Uh, and uh, uh, another one went out yesterday. I strongly recommend everybody watches that and listens very, very carefully uh, to what uh, General Sir Richard Barnes was telling uh, David Ellis yesterday. Um, so let's uh, just move on then quickly, Patrick, to this because we're nearly out of time. We mentioned this on Wednesday, uh, the Green Horizon Conference uh, that's being hosted or was hosted by uh, the City of London. It finished on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, and if you remember, it's time to reset the relationship between finance and the real economy. This is all about the, the, the Green New Deal. You were talking about this if Obama becomes uh, 
the uh, the uh, ambassador, thank you, to the UK. Uh, this is uh, absolutely uh, being driven forward as hard as it can by the World Economic Forum and the usual suspects, including Mark Carney, the former Bank of England governor. Uh, this is what he said. If you remember from Wednesday's programme, we'll not get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. Well, uh, towards the end of the conference then, Michael Hayes, uh, we didn't get to report this on Wednesday because it hadn't happened yet, but Michael Hayes, the K head of KPMG, had this to say, um, COVID-19 has been nothing more than a dress rehearsal for climate change. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the economic impacts of the lockdowns, of the policies that are being pushed forward by co as a result of COVID-19 are nothing more than a dress rehearsal for climate change. So in other words, we ain't seen nothing yet. And he was saying to everybody at that conference, it's time to get a move on. We need to press forward with this as fast as we can. So there were two reports which were included uh, in this in the conference. Uh, this was one of them, the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets. Uh, and uh, this was produced, well, who was the key front man on this? Well, it was none other than Mark Carney himself. Uh, it also involved the Institute for International Finance, McKinney Man McKinsey Management and Bloomberg Philanthropies. And it's all about encouraging companies to get involved in green markets, uh, which have to increase. The size of the green markets have to increase, according to this report, by 15 times by 20, uh, 2030. So within 10 years, we need to see a 15 times in increase in the size of carbon markets. Okay, and the second report, just before you comment on this, Patrick, the second report was this, building a private finance system for net zero. And I wonder who was fronting this report? Well, it was Mark Carney. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, uh, he, of course, is UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance. Uh, and he's also Boris Johnson's finance advisor for COP26. Uh, so this was leading into COP26, which was supposed to be taking place, uh, I think this month, uh, but it's been put back in Glasgow, but it's been put back by a year uh, in order to uh, uh, perhaps allow a real conference to take place rather than a virtual conference. But nonetheless, the preparations for COP26 uh, moving ahead, COVID-19 is nothing compared to what's coming uh, with that. So what can you envision? They're going to have uh, lockdowns because the... Uh, to to cut down carbon emissions or to you know, give, well, I, I, give I, the earth a rest, let's take a breather, uh, that, let's lock down for six months. What do you think? That, 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 that narrative is already across the mainstream press, mm. absolutely. We need to encourage people who really enjoyed the uh, ecological effects of lockdown. Uh, we want them to enjoy more of that. Um, and, uh, but the, the intention here is a wholesale transformation of, uh, of the economies, of the types of businesses that we're running, uh, there's going to be some pretty significant pain for people uh, because, of course, we've all we're all we've been told by the British government we've all got to go and retrain. So, so Carney's comments previously were that uh, businesses that don't comply with the new carbon orthodoxy are going to be punished, right? Bankrupted and yes, punished on one statement, bankrupted in another. This is as a narrative he has repeated time after time. So, what would be the easiest way to crush and to punish? any of these remaining straggling uh, anathema businesses and enterprises? Well, of course, if you don't allow them to open for business, then they're, then they're out of business. Lockdown. Lockdown. So this is just a culling effect. This is like uh, what they would call economic or 
new green Darwinism. So if you're not on board with the agenda, you will be you'll be crushed. Mm -hmm. And we'll do it manually through lockdowns. To, to, to make a market 15 times bigger, what's that going to take? Well, that that shouldn't be very easy. That shouldn't be very difficult, Mike. Because what what do these financiers like Mark Carney and this breed of elites? What do they specialize in? Well, they specialize in leveraging things out of thin air. No problem. A green bond market, green derivatives. I think we can achieve that 15 times, 15x growth uh, model. I think we can do that probably in a couple of years with these geniuses at the helm. They'll just create another green bubble that'll be inflated bigger than anything anybody's ever seen. And who cares if it pops? You know, who cares if anything pops anymore? You can just print more or whatever it is. And of course, uh, you are changing the relationship between finance and the real economy if in the process there is no real economy anymore. And that's right. that's, that's where we're going. Uh, universal yeah. basic income is on its way. Mm. And we will leave it there for today. So thank you very much, Patrick, for joining us today. Thank you for very, very much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time as usual, 1 p.m. on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend. In the meantime, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.